pull up a chair and join us at the Energy Roundtable. Welcome to Energy Roundtable. This week, uh, we are without our uh, usual um, combatant in arms. Uh, Lisa Katz is off being a mom and uh, doing a great job from what we hear and loving every minute of it and uh, in her place. Uh, our Director of Engineering here at CEM, Mr. Bill Davidson. Bill, welcome to the Energy Roundtable. Thanks very much. Glad to be here. You've had practice. You've done this once already, right? I have done it once with Lisa and Mark before, yes. Awesome. Good, good. Well, we've taken a week off. We had some COVID run through the uh, production crew, so um, we are all getting back to full health and we're getting back to the news topics of the day. I will start, if that's okay with you. and. Sure. Uh, we will. My first article. Now these we ha- were the articles we had last week um, for the roundtable, so they may be a little bit aged uh, to our listeners, but uh, hopefully good nonetheless. My my headline is uh, customer demand for DTE Energy's My Green Power Voluntary Renewable Program drives more solar energy projects in Michigan. So, in summary, DTE of course is a large uh, utility throughout the U.S. doing a lot of stuff, generation, distribution. And in uh, in Michigan, uh, they have a voluntary renewable program where you can sign up uh, for renewable energy to be delivered as a commercial or a residential subscriber. And uh, the article is, is acknowledging that they passed 50,000 residential uh, subscribers Um, which the article says is a customer base roughly equal to the population of Ypsilanti. So couldn't put it on a map. I'd have trouble spelling it. Uh, Look it up. It starts with a Y. Uh, But presumably it's a a big enough town to be of of, of relevance. So they go on to list other – this is on globalnewswire.com for those who are interested, but uh, they go to, you know, list a bunch of stats and things like that. What's what's interesting to me of this article is – the fact that it's a voluntary-based, you know, market and it's driving behavior, and I think that's that to me that's exciting that people are, you know, caring enough about energy. We care about it because it's our livelihood, uh, but people are caring about it enough to make a, a decision. And I think it also speaks to the fact that we're getting closer and closer to grid parity on a lot of renewables. Like the cost, the price point is coming down, so that you know it's not as much of a premium as we used to pay, but. The fact that they're seeing voluntary, that people are, are, are you know, kind of looking at a holistic picture and making a decision, that to me is encouraging. So uh, that's why I, I highlighted it. Um, I don't know if you had any thoughts or questions about a bill, but that's kind of the one I wanted to start with today. Yeah, I mean, 50,000 is not, not huge for the area. I do know the area. I'm from that area, right? So, um, right. But, but by chance. But, uh, but I completely agree with you because presumably that's just uh, uh, the start. But um, I am a little surprised that it's gained any sort of traction at all, like you said, on being on a voluntary basis. So um, I, I also am pretty positive on the news. So great. Well, and particularly, you probably know the you know, Michigan politics better than I do, but, you know, I, w- I, would, I wouldn't be surprised by this in California or the North- Northeast, but Michigan, not particularly, you know, blue state i think they're are they one of the purple states or where, where do they sit these days they, they've traditionally been actually pretty blue um but, okay yeah but but they've become pur- purple recently okay um yeah the, the, basically it's detroit is blue and the rest of it's red <laughs> gotcha yeah uh, gotcha. cool do you have an article for us bill i do so my first one is from the bbc it's on uh, the subject is nuclear fusion 
and uh, and the and the uh, headline is major breakthrough on nuclear fusion energy. Now this one is a little outdated. It's February, but I just thought it would be um, a good one because you and I had talked about this recently. In fact, it was on a, uh, a recent podcast. Um, so I wanted to give this as a bit of an update. But basically, this is an experiment that was run at the JET research facility. The JET is the Joint uh, European Taurus. This is a to uh, tokamak design, hence the Taurus, because that's the, the ring-shaped one. With the magnetic field that keeps the the plasma in check and, and the uh, reaction in check, um, this reactor it runs runs experiments as an analog for the future ITER plant. Um, ITER is International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor. ITER is the the larger scale one that's being um, being done in France. That's supposed to open in in uh, 2025, and the goal for the ITER is to run at break even or better. Uh, that happens to be the original goal at this JET facility, although I've read many things, uh, some more optimistic um, stuff for, for ITER. Uh, we've actually seen scientists hoping that we can get as much as uh, a 10 to 1 ratio out of it, meaning what? <laughs> what's coming out versus what's going in. Just to, just to pause, when you say break-even, you don't mean, I, I first went to financial break-even, but you mean energy balance break-even, right? I mean energy balance, yes. Yeah, in, in, in this field, um, they use something something called the fusion gain factor, which is literally energy in versus energy out. Although, I, if you look at the history, they've actually changed the definition over the years because um, the way it worked was that the the other one, like the the um, the one that's being done in the states primarily, which is called ICF, inertial confinement fusion. That's the one where they right now they use lasers uh, okay. to confine the re reaction. Um, that one, by the definitions. The old definitions for this uh, gain factor were like 0 0.007, like it was impossibly low. But they've, they've, they've since changed it so that they're on the same sort of playing field. But, but uh, I'll get to that in a second. So, so what, is, what has actually happened here? What's new? Well, they were able to produce 59 megajoules over five seconds. Hmm. Now, now, this doubles their previous record. The previous record was held by them in 1997, where they did 21.7 megajoules. Um, that five-second mark is a limitation of this particular reactor, the JET reactor, because the electromagnet, um, the electromagnets themselves overheat at this point. Always the five-second mark. Uh, okay. The ITER reactor will have a self-contained cooling system to to get over that. So that that's going to be awesome. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, let's get to the obvious question here, which is how much energy was put into the system versus what what comes uh, out. Right. So. Basically, that ratio that I was talking about in this case is about 0.3, meaning you're you got to put three times as much in as you're as you're getting out. So that seems pretty low. Right. But the, but the idea here, the idea is that scaling up um, to the eater, you could get you know it's because it's 10 times the volume. Uh, the eater one. This one is I think it's uh, if I remember correctly three meters across, and then and this other one's 10 times the volume um, that so they're. So yep. when you say when you say energy in versus energy, are we talking like what we in the thermal world call like heat rate? Like it's it's you know uh, you know energy out divided by energy in. Well, it's funny because the heat rate part was the part that was controversial before. So okay. that's so that's why it's overall now it's power versus power in versus power out. Okay. Because because the heat rate thing what, definition that's because I think that's originally what it was, and wow. uh, but that didn't work for the the laser one. <laughs> Oh, okay. so, so it's funny that you brought that up, yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, so now it's 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 power in versus power out. That's that's basically it. So and you need power to for the electromagnets and to uh, to heat up the reaction because you got to get 
because you got to get things fusing. That's why, right? right. Um, to, to to even start it off. Wow. So, yeah. So, um, what else was I going to say? So, oh, so what does, does this mean in the grand scheme of things for fusion? I mean, is this is it like 1997 was the last record? We're now here, you know, oh, 25 years later. I mean. Yeah, so a couple, and this this is exactly why I wanted to bring this up because right. there hadn't been a much. I know I mentioned it in that previous podcast, but there really hadn't been in recent um, memory anything that that triggered triggered me to say, you know what, we're still on that curve to get us to uh, fusion power by the end of the century, which sounds horrible, but that's that's the curve that we're really on at the okay. at the moment. We didn't even seem to be on this one, but there was a, um, a, a not a study, an actual breakthrough last year. I uh, forget the month, but but essentially on the ele- electromagnetic field part that um, basically gave them this big like ten times boost that could, because that was always uh, a, a critical component that just wouldn't wouldn't have worked on the eater the way they wanted to with the technology they had at the time they had this major breakthrough and then in February of this year this happened so you had two two things basically in a row where you're like okay now we seem to be back on track although again we're back on track to that sort of slow progress to getting something workable by um okay. the you know the great so something that would actually be producing power for us by uh l- later in the century but so i, I did want to mention what they actually did here what the what the actual um difference was how did they double it in that 20-year span well the original design uses uh deuterium as a fuel right which is an isotope of hydrogen. Uh, okay. But this experiment uses equal parts deuterium and tritium. Uh-huh. And right, so this requires a, a major material upgrade to the system. Originally, the um, reactor was made of carbon, and this one is a, a combination of beryllium and tungsten. Mm. But yeah, so my yeah, my, so my whole my whole point here was that this is a, a precursor to analog. Uh, for the eater, eaters coming up in 2025. This one will be this one will be decommissioned, and it looks like we are hopefully back on a, uh, I guess you could say, a reasonable path to this being maybe a real technology in the future. There you go. We're back on to our 2100 <laughs> vision kind of thing. Right. right. Yeah. Cool. I love it. I know it's. It, I mean, it's hard to. Sometimes you hear about fusion and you think it's kind of esoteric or whatever, but it's good. Yeah. Good to provide some some realistic uh, perspective. So cool. Yeah. Awesome. My uh, my next article is somewhat related in terms of um, progression in in technology development. This article is from uh, a website called NationalObserver.com. It's Canada's National Observer, um, not to be confused with the National Enquirer. Um, this is National Observer. Um, Australian researchers claim giant leap to produce affordable renewable hydrogen. So this is a, uh, I think it's a pre-commercial company uh, out of Australia, uh, researchers uh, at the, um, oh yes, so the company's called HiSATA um, and they're using uh, technology developed at the University of Wollongong. I hope I got that right. Um, and and really what, what the, the improvement is, is the uh, conversion efficiency of the electrolysis cells. So it's this, Capillary-fed uh, technology, um, and uh, that, that's kind of the big step forward here. Because, uh, and and what they're saying is they've gone from 75 to 95 percent efficiency, which means that you're you're losing less in heat. Uh, so you're putting in electricity, you're getting out hydrogen uh, at the back end, and in this case, you're converting more of that electricity to uh, to heat, or sorry, to to hydrogen as opposed to heat. Um, so you know, if they can commercialize this, this is a big deal because, of course, 
the more electricity that you put in, um, you know, obviously that electricity is not free and uh, it dries up the cost of the hydrogen. So if we can put in less electricity, we drive down the cost of hydrogen, we make hydrogen a more uh, competitive fuel, especially against some expensive um, uh, expensive uh, mobile fuel. So there's some cool, I would encourage people to check out the article on nationalobserver.com. There's some pretty cool graphics around uh, how this capillary uh, motion uh, works. Uh, through, you know, kind of, uh, I'm, I'm going to describe it poorly uh, online here, but there's a great graphic uh, for those who are interested in how the high SATA capillary fed electrolysis, CFE for short, how that works. So, you know, it's a space that, you know, you can't have a discussion like we have without talking about hydrogen. We all know that. Um, and so I think it's one of those things where in the electrolysis space, we're, we're, we're hopefully getting to the most efficient, but we're, we're not there yet. We're kind of halfway through that progression to get really mature technology. Um, so exciting to see if they can bring that to market. Right on. And yeah, that's a pretty substantial leap too. In one it is. It is. Yeah. You're, yeah. yeah, for sure. Wow. So, cool stuff. Okay. Cool. All right. You got um, one more for us? I got, I got one more for you. Um, this one is from MIT News and uh, it's called Towards Batteries That Pack Twice As Much Energy Per Pound. I love the subject. So this is about solid state batteries or, or a specific experiment run with uh, uh, solid state batteries. And and basically, first, what, what is a solid state battery real quick? So you have your conventional um, lithium ion batteries. They have, they have an anode and a cathode and you have an electrolytic liquid. Um, solid state lithium iron ion batteries, they also have an anode and a cathode, cathode but they're connected by um, a solid electrolyte. And okay, so so why would you do that? What what are the advantages? Well, you can get up to we figure possibly twice the energy density. Um, they have a longer la lifetime, and they are inherently more stable. They're less prone to catching fire, frankly. So, why aren't these batteries being used yet? Obvious question. There are prototypes out there right now, and we've already overcome a bunch of challenges, engineering type challenges, materials type challenges that have already. Uh, come up, but there is one that remains, and that is instability at the interface of the, of these materials due to trapped gases when they literally press them together. Ah, now, right. So it's, so, so it's a manufacturing challenge. It, it is, yes. So, okay. so it it makes sense that you can you know you can completely coat your probes with an electrolytic liquid. That's that's pretty that's pretty simple. But when you have two solids and you're trying to get them together, it's not not so easy. Right. Um, Right. So the current solution that they, they do right now, manufacturing wise, is, is a combination of sintering because these materials are ceramic. So you can get them a little more malleable by heating them up. Right. Mm -hmm. And they but but they have to do that and add an extra very expensive coating. So the the new discovery at uh, uh, this was this was MIT uh, Brookhaven National Lab uh, together. Their their discovery is that uh, is a method of addressing these issues with, with the with the sintering process itself that negates the need for that additional coating part. So we're talking about eliminating a full step in the manufacturing process, which would be huge at this point. Cool. So yeah, so so we're really what the, what the issue is is that um, the the problem when you're doing the sintering is that the CO2 from the air joins with the the material and you, you it actually reduces uh, conduction. So I, I love this the solution. This the solution is don't center with air. 
So, so what they're doing is they're they're actually just using pure oxygen, and their their results have been awesome. The the results showed that the the um, interfacial resistance is comparable to the worst values uh, when you're using the coatings. If you see what I'm saying, like it's actually uh, right. yeah, it's on the best end when you're using the coating. So you absolutely don't need those. Uh, that's what it looks like anyways. So it looks like the, the problem, that problem is solved, but there is still a lot of testing that needs to be done here. And uh, of course, so when are we gonna have solid state batteries, right, is, is my question here. But I can tell you that um, I don't know the answer to that, but Toyota believes that it's coming soon because mm. they've, they're actually banking. Articles have, should, have said that, they're, they're on record saying that they think they're going to market in three years with these, so. Good luck wow, three years. Wow, that's, okay. that's what they're saying. So, so, so yeah, that, that's a big name to be sticking their neck out. So, um, for sure. Cool. For sure. Wow, great. Well, that's that's yeah. I, you know, as much as I'm a, a molecules uh, guy, um, I, I do know that uh, on the electrons side of the world, with wind and solar, they need a storage uh, solution. That's we right. We believe that molecules can be part of that, uh, but you know, storing electrons in a battery, um, more, that's going to be part of the puzzle as well. So, uh, sure. getting getting more uh, more power stored in every uh, pound of battery is a good thing. So, cool. Yep. All right, well, let's uh, let's finish our roundtable with our face-off. I must admit, I'm a little bit nervous uh, as our um, Producer uh, extraordinaire Mark Charbonneau joins us. I'm a little bit nervous because I have not debated with Bill uh, in this setting uh, before. So um, we'll see how we do. Mark, uh, welcome. Thanks, guys. How's it going? Good. Um, good. Today's face-off topic, face topic is veganism. Mm. So uh, whether, whether you eat meat or not, you have to choose uh, you know, a pro or a con side. So... Um, we will let our rookie uh, call the coin toss here, Bill. So heads or tails? It's heads. It's always heads. <laughs> okay. And it's actually tails. Oh. So we will let uh, we will let our um, man Matt Lensing here decide. Oh, yeah. Where to go? Those are cons. Veganism. Cons. Veganism. Uh, I will go. Is this like the NFL? Can I punt? Like, can I can I pass on the selection? Um, I'll do pros of veganism. Wow. Wow. Okay. Our, and our, so, do I get to go first? I I guess you get to choose. You can. Okay. I'll. I usually go last, so I'll go first. Okay. It's oh wow. Week, it's the weaker of the two positions, but I mean, Bill is new to the show, so. Thank you. Thank uh, you. Bill is celebrating yeah. one year with CEM this week. That's, that's Ooh. true. Yes. Um, yeah. So uh, okay, thank you. See if we keep him for another year, based on. <laughs> uh, so so okay. so you know I think uh, everybody knows that I'm such a bleeding heart, especially as it comes to animals. Mark especially knows this. So certainly, yes, I, you know, I think one of the values of veganism is that we keep our um, animal population, um, you know, alive and well. Uh, just by strict definition, if we're not eating animals, we don't have to kill them. Um, we don't have to extort them, exploit them. Uh, and so I think, you know, as far as ha animal rights, I think we are uh, doing a positive um, to you know, the world that we live in by not killing those animals. Um, I think number two is, you know, as an energy guy, from an energy perspective, uh, you know, raising animals, feeding them, um, moving them around, processing them, 
Uh, I think it is very uh, energy intensive, um, and um, you know, so that so that we could reduce. Uh, you know, if we all went veganism, we would drive down the consumption of animals, and thereby we would drive down the energy that it takes to to get them onto our plate. Um, and and you know, somewhat tied to energy is you know is the carbon emissions profile of uh, animals, in particular. Um, cows. Uh, there's a lot of methane emissions that comes from cows uh, as it relates to whether it's dairy or beef uh, farming operations, whether it's through the front end or the back end. Uh, there's a lot of methane emissions that are tied uh, to to it. And, uh, and so I think if we went vegan, we would reduce a lot of that. Uh, and I think, you know, there are studies out there that show that, you know, we as, as humans are a lot healthier if we are eating uh, largely a plant-based diet. I think that's you know, not for everybody, I, I think, but uh, certainly many people have benefited by uh, a, a, a veganism approach to their diet and uh, really clean eating and things of that nature. Um, so, yeah, I think those are you know three or four of the, the benefits of uh, being a vegan. All right. Very good. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Go ahead, Bill. Okay. Thanks, uh, Matt. So I'm taking the con version, anti-vegan uh, side here. <laughs> And I want to start by saying that I have huge respect for vegans. Um, they're they're typically Ooh. taking <laughs> they're typically taking <laughs> an ethical stance here, right? Uh, you know, also combined with health health interests and in that. And obviously, I can get behind that. But of course, I'm, I'm supporting their choice. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to make the same choice myself. Nor would I expect anyone else to do the same. So let me just start with the reasons why um, I would I eat meat personally. It's pretty easy. It's convenient. And it's oh so tasty. There isn't much else to the to my own thought process here, but it's more than enough for me to continue down this path. So I really need to look at arguments from uh, vegans themselves to to uh, decide if they're convincing enough for me to change my ways. And the three main arguments they make: health, environmental sustainability, ethical considerations. All things that Matt just said. So this health, health, real quick. I'm not going to take the position where I point out that eating meat is natural for humans because that's just the naturalistic fallacy. And, you know, but our bodies are adapted to an omnivorous diet. You could argue that this is largely irrelevant, at least to someone who, by their accident of birth, lives where I live. But because um, we have a, access to a huge variety of fruits and vegetables and all the supplements that I would need to maintain my health. But this leads to a major counterpoint um, on the anti-vegan side. We have to remember that veganism is a privileged position. That doesn't mean people with the means shouldn't do it. It's simply to point out that it's not a tenable strategy for everyone. And the key point in my mind with respect to the health is that even in situations where we can supplement ourselves to a health position that's comparable to those of meat eaters, in practice, we just don't do it. If you look at data from studies of people following a vegan diet historically, they are deficient in meat-provided vitamins when you view them in the aggregate. That's not any one person, but in the aggregate. Now, I hope it's obvious that I'm not arguing that, that a vegan diet can't be healthy, but surely this is not a category of points that would push me away from my default meat-eating position. Environmental sustainability, hit that one quick. This is a great one because it's a point that is scientifically informed. In essence, it makes it easier for us to judge um, because we're taking advantage of the hard work of others here. And this is a point that I've always solidly given to the pro-vegan side because it simply sounds correct. 
We have all read the numbers that producing meat um, takes up massive amounts of land and water. It stands to reason that substituting this for growing edible plants would lead to a more sustainable future where the needs of many more people are met. And since this proposal has been studied quite a bit lately, we can reach a conclusion with high confidence. And that is simply reducing meat consumption would certainly help in our quest to reduce GHG uh, emissions, greenhouse gases. But the operative word in that sentence is reducing. At lower levels of meat consumption, the environmental effects are equal or better. The best outcome is with a different mixture of plant-based and animal-based food than we have at the moment. And personally, I would I would certainly reduce my meat intake to help the environment. But that doesn't appear to be a reason to, to become vegan, not with the numbers. So the ethical consideration real quick, from my point of view, this is the strongest of the, the pro-vegan um, arguments. Uh, we all know what factory farming looks like, and I'm going to spare everybody the imagery. But the point for this discussion that is that it's clearly not a situation where the lives and the well-being of the animals are a priority. I personally do put value on the well-being of animals. So ultimately, it comes down to a, a value judgment version of a cost-benefit analysis. I do believe that some current uh, factory farming pra practices just have to go. And I'm going to add, this is a caveat, when I say that as long as we have controls in place to reduce the suffering of animals as much as practical, my own value judgment with respect to the ethical consideration falls solidly on the pro-meat side. So given that the main pro-vegan arguments don't really appear to move the needle with respect to a default meat-centric position, I hope you'll join me in celebrating the tasty gifts that our animal brethren have bestowed upon us. <laughs> so meat, meat industry, please treat your animal, animals as humanely as possible, but please continue. Thank you very much. <laughs> wow, that was uh, extensive. Uh, but I think we have our new our new Lisa right here, right? So he's he's prepared. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I obviously I got to give that one to Bill. That was very thorough <laughs> and. Uh, um, although words than I did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> although the sustainability um, thing is is also uh, you know a pro uh, vegan um, reason for me as well. I mean, I mean, uh, yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah. I have to say, I have to give it to Bill. Sorry, so it's 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 our, our new Lisa for now. Not only is Bill pro meat, he's also anti-vegetable. Let's be clear. <laughs> <laughs> At least I, you know, I I love you know animals, especially on my plate, as the listeners know. Mm -hmm. But I will also eat the vegetables that come with it. My my comrade in arms here is not not as not as well balanced. So uh, again, in the aggregate, eating mm -hmm. eating meat is probably good. If Bill was the exception, he probably would be deficient on the things that come in vegetables. So. Anyways, uh, never boring. Thank you both. This was fun, Mark. Great, uh, great to be back and doing this with you. Thank you for hosting the face off. And Bill, thank you for jumping in while Lisa's away. I think what what this is trending towards is when Lisa comes back, I'm probably the one on the way out, and you two are are, are and it'll become an hour long show and away we go. It'll be like two hours, by the way. These guys analyze their uh, face off uh, topics, eh? So, oh, well, thank you both, and most importantly, thank you to our listeners. As always, we appreciate uh, you listening and tuning in, and hopefully, we bring some value and some humor at the same time. And as always, give us some feedback. Until we meet again. Uh, Stay safe and uh, have fun. And uh, remember, you're not uh, alone. We're all in this together. Thanks, Thank you. Guys.